As you're grabbing a seat this morning, the ushers are going to receive the offering. And so if you brought that with you, you can bring that forward. And uh, while they're receiving the offering, uh, I'm going to introduce our guest today, which I, I don't normally spend very much time doing this, but, um, but I really just want to take a moment and introduce uh, him to you. Um, in fact, let me just share this part of my journey. It was probably 10 or 15 years ago that I began to become aware of um, just the world that I grew up in, and I realized I had some learning to do around race and around culture. And so I, because of some friendships and some relationships, I, just, I, I began this journey of just figuring out um, things in our culture, what it was like to be a white male in our culture, what it was like to not be a white male in our culture. And I just started growing and learning, and a couple of friends were helping guide me in that. And then somebody, one of those friends, actually gave me this book by um, an author, and at the time, I couldn't pronounce his name. I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but I read this book, and it was just incredibly impactful, and it challenged me. It stimulated things inside of me. It caused me to get a little defensive at moments, but it really opened my eyes to um, just the reality of culture in, in our society. And so um, then I started showing up at conferences, and this same author, I, I don't know how it happened, but like every time I showed up at a conference or some sort of convention, he would be speaking at it. And so uh, I was really learning from him. And then I'll never forget, there was um, one that I showed up at in New York City, and uh, he said some things from the stage, and he kind of frustrated me. I actually left, and I was a little ticked at him. I was like, how dare he? And, uh, and so I had a little chip on my shoulder, towards him. And then as it would be like in God's kingdom, um, I signed up to do a, a climb, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro with World Vision. And this same individual was assigned to this exact same team that I was. And so I thought, God, you have a sense of humor that the last time I heard him speak, I kind of left angry. And, uh, and then on that hike, we became really close friends. And, uh, and so after that hike, we actually went to Rwanda. We toured the genocide memorial in Rwanda on the 25th anniversary together. Um, since that time, we've climbed some peaks in Wyoming. We've made uh, Korean fusion tacos before, and uh, in his kitchen earlier this year, he made me eat kimchi. Um, but more than his accolades, he's a professor at, at Fuller Seminary now, was 14, 15 years at North Park in Chicago. More than his accolades, he's my friend. And he's a friend I can be open with and honest with. And we can have all kinds of dialogue. And we've walked through some difficult stuff together. We've shared our hearts. And uh, we've seen each other at our worst and at our best. And so I would love for you guys to give a warm B4 welcome to my friend, Dr. Soon Chan Ra. Thank you. Uh, what an honor for me to be here with you. And I'm especially thankful for Pastor Brad, uh, not just for the invitation to be here, uh, but also for our friendship over the years. And as he mentioned, um, we have had many opportunities to uh, be in community through climbing, through World Vision, and through other spaces. Um, and he's one of those who knows my heart in multiple levels. You know, there are those you kind of know on the surface, but Pastor Brad is one of those people that really knows me in, in, in the deepest places of my, my, my life, so thank you, uh, Pastor Brad, for your friendship. Um, I, uh, this year, I will turn 55 years old. I don't look it, do I? Well, hey. <laughs> you might have heard the phrase, black don't crack. There's a new phrase, Asian don't raisin. This is actually true. <laughs> we age very gracefully. Uh, but when I turned 50 years old, I had this kind of real focus of like, I've got to get into better physical shape. 
I'm at a stage in my life where I've got to take care of myself better physically. Now, I said the same thing when I turned 40. I didn't do anything about it. But when I turned 50, this was, this was serious. And I took it very seriously. I've got to get into better physical health. I've got to get in better shape. And um, I'm an academic researcher. I'm a scholar. So I did what academic researchers and scholars do, which is we research this topic. So I use the academic researcher's number one tool. You might have heard of it. It's called Google. Uh, so I go on Google and I type in what's a good fitness program for, for someone. And it pops up that it's something called CrossFit. Any of you heard of this? CrossFit? Yeah? Okay. So I did research on CrossFit. And um, I was really excited because CrossFit uses a philosophy called muscle confusion. That's the way they approach exercise. And that really made me excited because that's been my approach to exercise my entire life, muscle confusion. And the way I've applied it is I don't go to the gym for months and months. And when I go, my muscles are really confused why we are there. And they get hard and angry and they toughen up. Uh, so the idea for me in thinking through this physical regimen of exercise and how disruption, discomfort, dis-ease, those things that we sometimes shy away from, that actually, the disruption in the status quo could actually create a better physical health. Is it possible that that's also true of our spiritual lives? That disruption, discomfort, dis-ease is also important when we spiritually want to grow and that this kind of level of comfort that we have, this level of malaise or the sense of everything's fine for me uh, might even prevent us from growing. And this was uh, uh, all kind of happening around the time that I was working on a book on, the, on, on a commentary in the book of Lamentations. And uh, as I was exploring this, I was recognizing that lament, the spiritual practice of lament, and even the book of Lamentations is not a topic that is often found time, particularly in the Western and in the American church. Uh, some of you may know that the Psalms, which is the worship life of Israel, is 60% Psalms of praise. We can put that slide up. 60% Psalms of praise and 40% Psalms of lament. So it's not 50-50, but there is a significant representation in the Psalms, the worship life of Israel, of lament. And uh, as I was looking through the role of lament in the American church, there was one study done by Denise Hopkins who was looking at liturgical churches, churches like the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Lutheran Church, Methodist Church, and they're guided by worship books that says on this day, or the liturgical calendar, that says on this day, you will read this lament psalm, or sing this lament hymn, or preach from this lament uh, uh, story. And uh, what Dr. Hopkins found is that when it came time to preach on lament, sing lament, or read lament, most of these churches dropped it and replaced lament with a happier song, a happier hymn, or a happier passage. Another study was done by Glenn Pemberton, and Pemberton was looking at the use of hymns, hymnals, the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. Again, 60% are psalms of praise, 40% are psalms of lament. But what Pemberton found was that in the Baptist hymnal and Presbyterian hymnal, 80 to 85% of the hymns were hymns of celebration and praise, and only about 15% of the hymns were hymns of suffering and lament. Now, reminder, that's just what's in the hymnals. It's not what's actually sung. And what's actually sung is even lower a percentage of hymn, uh, hymnals that talk about lament. 
So I decided to do a study on contemporary Christian worship music and ask the question, what's the percentages for contemporary Christian worship music? So some of you know something called CCLI. It stands for Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. It's good to know that God's music is incorporated because that's what they do at CCLI is they keep track of all the contemporary worship songs that are sung. In fact, uh, you're supposed to have a little number at the bottom of your screen, CCLI, and the uh, licensing number. And then after you sing those songs, you write back to CCLI and said, uh, we use the following songs. And they aggregate all this information, and once a year, actually in August, they publish the top 100 most popular worship songs. And they have to keep an accurate track because they distribute the royalties to the songwriters in this way. So every time you sing a contemporary worship song, an angel gets his wings, and somebody gets half a penny. So that kind of record has to be accurate. So a few years ago, as I was writing this book, I decided to explore this list of the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs and ask the question, what percentage are lament songs? So how many of you say, uh, so I, I actually you know, went through every lyric of every song, sorry, I made my TA go through every lyric <laughs> That's what they're for, uh, every lyric and every song, to determine what percentage of these top 100 songs are songs of lament. And so how many of you say that just like in the Bible, 40% of our most popular contemporary worship songs are songs of lament, 40%. How about 25% of our song? How about 20%? How about 15%? Uh, by my estimation, about five to ten out of the most popular hundred worship songs are songs of lament, and the other 90, 95 are songs of celebration and victory. And I was using the term lament as generously as I possibly could. The song starts out, I cry out, oh, lament. Uh, the rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. No, I still counted it. It was such a pathetic number of lament songs. So what we're seeing then is that in our typical worship life, uh, particularly in the West and particularly in the United States, we avoid lament. We don't sing about it. We don't talk about it. Uh, how many have ever heard an entire sermon series on the book of Lamentations? Yeah, that's about right. Two or three out of how many people are here. Uh, you might have heard one sermon on the book of Lamentations because there's one positive verse, and you might have heard that sermon preached, uh, but not the whole book because it's a depressing book. It's a downer. And so we avoid the practice and discipline of lament. Now, here's a quick definition of lament as we go into this topic. Lament is the appropriate theological, liturgical, spiritual, ecclesial response to the reality of suffering, pain, and crisis in our world. So two parts to that. One, we recognize that there is pain in the world. We recognize that there are social, cultural, historical realities that are very painful for many people in our society. So the reality of suffering, pain, and crisis. And then lament is the appropriate theological, ecclesial, spiritual, liturgical response to that suffering. So two parts. One, there is pain and suffering. Two, how do we respond to that pain and suffering? And that's where we're going to look at the book of Lamentations today and look at the way that the people of God responded to the pain and suffering they encountered. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1, we find out the reason why the book of Lamentations was written. Verse 1, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She was a queen among the provinces, but has now become a slave. So you see the contrast there. 
Israel as a nation at one time had been a great nation, a queen among the provinces, uh, a great nation among all the other nations. That was when David was king, and David expanded the military borders of Israel. And then his son Solomon expanded the economic might of Israel. And so under David and Solomon, the nation of Israel flourished quite a bit. And there was great wealth, and there was great power, and they were a superpower in the ancient Near East at that time. But those of you who know the rest of the story, it didn't last. The subsequent kings that followed David and Solomon, they didn't worship Yahweh. They worshiped other gods. They uh, created worship centers outside of Jerusalem. Uh, they did all these things that disobeyed the commandments of God. And so after many, many generations of this, God needed to bring his judgment upon his people. And so the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out. The southern kingdom of Israel is wiped out. And all that's left is the city of Jerusalem. And eventually the Babylonians come and they conquer and they wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 says that bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Verse 3. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. Now, exile for the people of God is the absolute worst punishment. When you're in exile, you've lost your promised land. You've been separated. Uh, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, your identity is God's special and unique people, all of that was taken away and they're sent away into exile. So this is unquestionably the lowest moment in Israel's history. They've lost everything. Their families are broken up. Their homeland has been taken away. All their prophets, priests, and kings have been sent away into exile. Their identity as God's people, all gone. This is the lowest moment in Israel's history. So the question is not, is there suffering and pain and a crisis? That's a reality. The question is, how will God's people respond to that suffering, pain, and crisis? And there is one option. The first option is when crisis occurs, you run away and hide. You give up. You're, you're tired, you're exhausted, you fought the good fight, and now you've lost and you've been sent away into exile. All that mattered to you is taken away, so why not? It's time to run away and hide and to give up. And to that temptation, Yahweh speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 and speaks to them and says, that's actually not an option for you. You are not allowed to run away and hide. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. So he's writing to those who are in Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. In other words, you are still God's people. You still act and live life like you are God's people. Here's the kicker, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which I understand is an important verse for this church. Chapter 29, verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you into exile. Important passage for a couple of reasons. One, almost every other time in the Bible, you see the phrase, seek the peace, and a city is attached. 99% of the time, which city do you think God wants you to seek the peace of? This, seek the peace of... Jerusalem, right? That makes total sense. Jerusalem is the capital of the promised land. It's David's city. It's the holy place where the temple of God is. We should seek the peace of Jerusalem. This is one of the very rare times you don't seek the peace of Jerusalem, but where? You seek the peace of Babylon. 
And that would have made no sense to the people hearing this. Seek the peace of Babylon. What, what are you talking about? Babylon is Hollywood, Las Vegas, uh, Washington, D.C., and Wall Street all rolled into one. Everything that is wrong with the world gets rolled into Babylon. And you want me to seek the peace of Babylon? Now, seek the peace of Portland. That's the, we can do that. We'll seek the peace of Portland. But you want us to seek the peace of Babylon. Vegas, Hollywood, Wall Street, all of that rolled into one. That's what you want me to seek the peace of? Because God says, even if you are in the midst of the most wicked and evil and broken place on earth, you don't stop being my people. You are still God's people. When there is injustice rampant all around you, when there is brokenness all around you, we don't have the option of running away and hiding because as God's people, we're called to be God's people in Jerusalem, but also in Babylon. Now, there's a part that I struggle with because I'm a church historian, and I, as I study church history, I realize that there have been moments when actually the church did the exact opposite of what Jeremiah 29 verse 7 tells us to do. Instead of staying in the places of pain and crisis and being the salt and light, oftentimes the church ran away from those places and hid out. And in, uh, in history, you'll find that in the decades post-World War II, 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, there was a significant uh, migration of many Christians from urban centers to suburban communities. And you'll see a lot of new church buildings that pop up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it was a flight of, of folks leaving the city, Christians, and moving to the suburbs. And so a lot of the megachurches in the 70s and 80s were in the suburbs. A lot of the Christian colleges and seminaries fled to the suburbs. So the amount of money that was spent on church buildings in 1945-46 was about $25 million. But 10, 15 years later, that number jumps to like $3 billion. So the number is skyrocketing because all these new church buildings are being built as people flee the city. There was something interesting about the architecture. If we can put that slide up. The, the way these church buildings were built, many of the sanctuaries look like this. So if a church building was built in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, you saw sanctuaries that looked like this. And in many cases, um, it, it's, it's all over the United States. Now, I was about a 10-year-old, 9-year-old kid when I walked into a church building that was being dedicated that had a sanctuary that looked like this. And I knew as a 9-year-old, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. How do I know this? Because we were in a cold-weather state on the East Coast. It was the middle of January, and the heating vents run along the floor. Now, the heat is on, but where does all that heat go? Right up into the rafters. So you literally have the frozen chosen on the ground and all that warm air up into the rafters. So what do you get eventually? You have to build ceiling fans to push down that warm air, and then Pentecostals can't worship because you keep hitting your hand on the ceiling fans when you're raising your hands. So this architecture... <laughs> Made no sense. I'm nine years old. I'm thinking this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Whose idea was it to build the sanctuary that looks like this? The senior pastor gets up and says, it was my idea to build the church building to look like this. Oh, it was his idea. So, but he starts explaining. This is why we built the sanctuary to look like this. He says, imagine this church building turned upside down. What are you looking at when you're looking at a church building like this turned upside down? You're looking at the bottom of a boat. You're looking at a really big ship. Now, where in the Bible do you read about a really big ship? 
Noah's Ark. There you go. The answer is not Jesus. The answer is Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Where do you read about Noah's Ark? Now, think with me. If you go to the next slide, think with me about what the church is saying to the world when you are saying you are Noah's Ark to the rest of the world. Well, we don't care about you. You can be destroyed by the judgment and flood of God as long as the good Christians are safe in Noah's Ark. We don't care that the judgment waters come upon the world as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark. In fact, if the world has all that evil stuff, We'll have good Christian versions of it. The world has secular art. We'll make Christian art. If the world has secular schools, we'll have Christian schools. If the world has secular music, we'll have mediocre, not-so-good Christian music. So everything that is out there in the world, we're going to make a Christianized version of it on our little ark. Now, how do you do evangelism from an ark, by the way? Very poorly. Here's how evangelism works on an ark. Uncle Joe floats by. Of course you love Uncle Joe. You're going to throw out a little life raft or a life preserver. Throw it out to Uncle Joe and bring him onto the raft. And, oh, Uncle Joe, we're so glad you're here with us because you're going to, you're going to fit right in to this, to this ark. Uh, we, we have the same kinds of foods you'd like. We have the same kind of music that you like. You're going to fit right in. But then a neighbor floats by, and you think, and you pause. Why? Because that neighbor borrowed your mower a week ago, and it hasn't returned it yet. So do you really want them on that ark? But maybe more importantly, the neighbor is different from you. The neighbor is a 2-4 clapper, and this ark is a 1-3 clapping ark, and that's going to throw all of us off with that kind of different clapping pattern here. Uh, the, we only have one bottle of sriracha. This guy looks like he really likes sriracha sauce. We're going to run out of sriracha sauce. So maybe we'll let this guy kind of float off, and maybe there's another ark for him that's more for his kind of people. So we have created a way of thinking about a church that ran away and hid in our safe spaces rather than seeking the peace and prosperity of the city into which God has sent us. This has led to some of the most segregated moments in, in church, that uh, there are statistics that demonstrate that the segregation level in many churches post this era was among the highest recorded in American history. The only other time the level of segregation that we had in these churches, the only other time that was actually found was in the Deep South during Jim Crow laws. The level of segregation in the church was equal to the level of segregation in the Deep South during Jim Crow laws. So what we're talking about is a way that we ran away and hid as the world changed around us instead of engaging in the pain, suffering, and the reality of the world that we lived in. So my response then is how does the book of Lamentations offer to us a way of thinking about the world not to run away and hide, but to seek the peace of the city? And that's where lament comes in. Lament is the appropriate response to the reality of pain and suffering in the world. The world is suffering. We don't run away. We stay in the places of suffering. So I'll use this example. Um, the question is, who wrote the book of Lamentations? That's an important question for scholars and for historians. Uh, the question is that Lamentations was clearly a well-written book, and it was written after the exile. Uh, the exile actually didn't mean that everybody went to Babylon. It actually was the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learned, anybody who could read or write, essentially anybody they felt who could re uh, restore the nation and restore the capital, rebuild the capital. Uh, young men were especially taken away. 
uh, anybody who could read or write. So that's where we talk about Daniel and his friends being sent away into Babylon and into exile. So the ones that were remaining in Jerusalem were the women, the children, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. What we might call the very least of our society. They were the ones that remained in Jerusalem. And so the learned, the educated, prophets, priests, and king were all sent away. So when you know that history and Lamentations is being written, one of the questions you ask is, well, then, who could have written the book of Lamentations? Because all the literate have been sent away. Historically, we know that Jeremiah actually was allowed to stay behind, mainly because in the book of Jeremiah, he talks about Babylon is here as God's righteous judgment. The Babylonians thought he was on their side. So Jeremiah is allowed to stay behind. As far as we know, he may be the only literate person who was left behind at the, after the exile. So historically, traditionally, credit has been given for Jeremiah as the author of the book of Lamentations. Here's the problem, though. If you read the story and the, and the writing of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, and you read the writing of Lamentations, you recognize, whoa, these are two really different styles of writing. The way I compare it is Jeremiah is Shakespeare. It's poetic. It's, it's, it's artistic. And uh, Lamentations is BTS. Uh, it's a little more down to earth. It's a little uh, BTS. Uh, Bob Dylan? I'm trying to get uh, Garth Brooks? I'm trying to get the right cultural context here. <laughs> BTS? Right? <laughs> uh, yes, okay, thank you. So the contrast is that there's one style of writing here, Shakespeare, and another style of writing here, BTS, that actually says, wait, could the same person have written both Jeremiah and Lamentations? Well, here's the way I've kind of worked through this in, in my work on this. Jeremiah clearly, as the only leftover uh, who could read or write, clearly wrote down the words of Lamentation. There's no question about who wrote down the words of Lamentations. But if you read through the book of Lamentations, it is very clear that it's not his words that he writes down, and it's not his voice that rises up. In fact, what happens is that uh, after the exile and the men and the literate have been sent away, uh, the women, the children, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, they all gather at the city gate. And they begin to tell their story, their story of suffering, the story of pain, their story of brokenness. And Jeremiah, he doesn't come up to the front to speak. He's in the back writing down their stories. I argue that Lamentations is, is, is the most feminine book of the Bible, maybe even more than Esther or Ruth, because it's the voices of women that rise up front and center. They've suffered the most, so their voices need to be heard. If there's a side comment on this, I would say that our churches would do so much better in times of crisis if we heard the voices of women. If the men were just to say, let's hear the voices of women. So that's what's happening here. Jeremiah actually kind of shuts his mouth and he longs to hear those that have suffered the most and he writes down the words of the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. I want to offer that as a challenge because communities oftentimes don't know how to lament because that's not your practice. You sing songs of triumph and victory and those are good, but sometimes you don't hear the lament of the broken people in our world. Sometimes you don't hear the lament stories of those that are hurting, the voices oftentimes of the widows and the orphans and those who society has treated unjustly. Those are the voices that we oftentimes don't hear. I'll close with this illustration. As Brad mentioned, I, I go to a lot of conferences and um, something weird happened to me because I was a, a pastor for 17 years. And for the last 16 years, I've been a professor. And when I transitioned from 
uh, pastor to professor, some kind of surgeries psychologically happened. And I went from an extreme extrovert to almost an extreme introvert. So when I go to conferences, I would, you know, when I was a pastor, I would try to meet everybody and have lunch with everybody. But when I went as a professor and as a professor, I would, like, look for the quietest room and hide out for the entire conference until it was time for me to speak, and then I'll go back and hide out in the back room. So what happens, though, is that people track you down. Somehow or another, they track you down. And I had been a church planner. I planted a multi-ethnic church, planted an urban church. So a lot of young church planners would come and seek me out and ask me, what's your secret? How did you plant that church in, uh, in Cambridge? Uh, what, what, what's your secret? And what I say is usually, um, stop coming to these conferences. <laughs> stop paying $500 in registration to go to this conference, $500 on airfare, $500 on, uh, on hotel, and then another $500 for incidentals and meals and all of that, because you could have saved a lot of money because the secret to planting a successful church is not coming to the conferences where you learn exactly what you already should know. If you want to welcome newcomers, be nice to them. That's not something you need to pay $2,000 for. Uh, if you want to welcome people, that, you know, those are not things you pay money for. I said, what you really want is a praying mother, a praying grandmother. That's how sometimes life works. You want to hear the lament from the broken communities and oftentimes those are the mothers and the grandmothers of our community. I say this because my mom passed away almost exactly two years ago in August, in the middle of COVID. Um, we kind of broke all the rules and, and gathered together because we knew she was not going to make it through the summer. So the entire family gathered to be by her bedside. Um, my mom uh, was in her late 80s. She was 88 when she passed away. Um, and she was a single mom. She raised four kids in inner city Baltimore. Uh, we lived in the hood. We lived in a, a rough community. Uh, because that's the only place that we could afford to live. My mom worked two jobs uh, for six days a week. She would go from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and work in an inner city carryout. Some of you know who maybe grown up in inner city neighborhoods, you know the kind of place I'm talking about. Uh, it was a place that the entire front was plexiglass, uh, bulletproof. And then there was a lazy season where you passed the food and the money back and forth. My mom would work there for a full 12-hour shift Monday through Saturday. Uh, and then she would actually drive to her next job, where she was a nurse's aide in a nursing home, inner city nursing home, and she would be there from 11 to 6, 11 to 7 a.m. Uh, so she would work 20 hours a day, six days a week. She would rush home at 7 a.m. and, and uh, bake breakfast for her children, send us off to school, sleep two hours, and then go back to work. Uh, she did this six days a week, 20 hours a day for years and years, because as a single mom, it was the only way she could keep her family together. She worked very, very hard. Um, the problem was that uh, we really, even with her two jobs, we really couldn't make ends meet. So uh, we ended up on food stamps, living in an inner city neighborhood. Um, and around that time, there was a lot of rhetoric around those who took money from the government. And so my mom was labeled a welfare queen, even though there's nobody who worked as hard as my mom, 20 hours a day, six days a week. But that was her label, welfare queen, lazy single mom. That was not the case at all. But my mom worked and worked hard. She got us out of the inner city neighborhood, moved us to the suburbs of, of Maryland, and allowed us to uh, excel in many different spaces. I went on to college. Uh, all of my sisters and I are in some kind of education or pastoral ministry of some sort. And in a sense, the only way she made this happen, in my opinion, is when she showed me, and when she was in her late 60s, she showed me the condition of her knees. 
And most of us have one kneecap on each knee. She has five kneecaps on each knee. Because every day, she would pray for an hour or two on a hard wooden floor, kneeling before God. And when you do that for 30, 40, 50 years, your knees can't take that kind of pressure. So her knees cracked open, and then her knees would conform to the shape of the floor. So that when she prayed, her knees would be there, and she would kneel before God and intercede on behalf of her family, her children, and her grandchildren. And when I think about the ways that society labored her the welfare queen, the immigrant single mom, disposable person in our society. And I think about these church planters and hotshot pastors, and I say, what you really need is a praying mother and a praying grandmother. The lament of the broken and the marginalized in our society, those are the voices that you need to hear. Not the triumphant, victorious voices of the hotshot pastor who at the age of 29, he's been 29 for 20 years, at the age of 29 is able to build a mega... That's not the voices we need to hear. We need to hear the lament of the mothers and the grandmothers who sacrificed and whose broken knees tell the story of a genuine, true lament before God. My dear brothers and sisters... My dear brothers and sisters, there are places where we should jump up in joy at the victory that we experience, but there are also those places where we engage the lament and the brokenness of our society, of our church, of our families, and ask God to be present, not just in our victories, but also in our laments. Gracious God, thank you for the work that you do in this church. Thank you for the willingness and the desire to see you in all the spaces, whether it's space of victory, but also the spaces of suffering and trial. We ask, Lord, for the continuing work of your spirit to speak through this church and to move through this church. For we ask this in your name. Let the church say, amen. So I didn't mention this in our first service today, but I, I'm going to share this now, that the reason he made me mad at that conference is because he challenged me to use my voice on behalf of those that are marginalized. And then about 15 minutes later, he challenged me to shut up and not use my voice. And later that night, I was gathering with some friends, and I said, I don't know what it is. Am I supposed to use my voice or am I supposed to shut up? I don't know when to talk and when not to talk. And my friends who uh, were from marginalized backgrounds said, that's how we feel all the time. I learned a really significant lesson, and the challenge of knowing when to let the powerless speak is a challenge we all need to hear. So who are the voices? What are the voices in our lives that we need to lean into? Who do we need to listen to? Who do we need to allow to speak to us? Would you stand with me? May we be men and women who learn how to lament. And may we lean in to the voices that need to be heard. Will we be courageous enough to sit and let them speak and allow them to teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.